Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, who's the News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU. And today we're going to talk about invasive plants and why they are a problem here in Indiana. We have three guests with us, all in the studio today. Kathy Meyer is with Monroe County Parks and Recreation. She's a naturalist. Ellen Jacart is a director of Northern Indiana Stewardship for the Nature Conservancy. And Adam Casey is district manager for Lake Lemon Conservancy. You can join the conversation by uh, giving us a call at 812-855-081, here, or 0811 here in Bloomington, or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, with all that out of the way, welcome. Thanks for being here today. We really appreciate it. So, um, I don't know which one of you wants to start, but so give us sort of the overview of this problem and this issue with the invasive plants. Ellen, you want to begin? Sure. Okay. Um, invasive plants are a, a major issue for, for folks in Indiana, both in the water that Adam deals with and out on the land invading lakes and forests, prairies and wetlands. And they have an incredible number of negative impacts to our natural areas, to they displace our native species, they increase soil erosion, they harm wildlife, they uh, harm rare species. And so many of us have gathered together to try and work on this issue and to Increase these negative impacts that we're seeing from invasive plants and trying to teach people what they can do to um, deal with this issue. So how do they harm wildlife? Oh, they harm wildlife. Think about all the migratory birds that are coming through Bloomington right now, and they are stopping in our trees and they're eating the caterpillars on those trees. But if you look in many of our forests, look down at the forest floor, what you're going to see is garlic mustard and Asian bush honeysuckle and invasive plants that are actually harming those trees, decreasing their growth, and they're stopping the regeneration of our forests in many cases. So what happens when the forests go away? We lose our songbirds migrating. We lose those important stopover sites and food for those birds. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. And we're seeing that impact here? We are. Do you see evidence of that? Absolutely. Look down at the, the understory of our forests. If you looked in the middle of April, so last month, right, most of our trees hadn't leafed out. The branches are bare. But if you looked in the understory, you would see bright green everywhere. That was Asian bush honeysuckle. And it grows so densely and so competitively in the understory of forests that it stops the regenerating trees. And so we have these old trees above, but we don't have a new forest coming. And so in 50 years, unless something is done, it's likely that we're really not going to have the forests that we have today. So, Ellen, I want to ask you, uh, so as director of Northern Indiana Stewardship, where do you generally work? 
Well, I have kind of two parts to my job. My uh-huh. job title is Northern Indiana. So yesterday I was up in Jasper County, the beautiful prairie border area, Jasper, Jasper Pulaski Fish and Wildlife Area. I supervise all the management of the lands that the Conservancy owns up there. We have about 15,000 acres of land. But I live in Monroe County, and I love Monroe County. And so I kind of went together with a lot of my friends years ago to work on invasive species issues in this area. And so this is kind of my home county and and where I work on invasives. All right. So I know the uh, Indiana Department of Natural Resources is involved in this, and both of your organizations, right, Adam and Kathy, have been given some money to work on this invasive species? Yes, DNR has a LAIR program, they call it, uh, Lake and River Enhancement, and that's been going on for probably the better part of two decades. Um, We've been receiving funds from DNR since the mid to late 90s. Um, I'd say on average right now they give us about $5,000, which is kind of a small drop in the bucket, but they focus on some major problems around the state and large reservoirs, and it really helps us supplement our budget that we have for the treatment of species. Mm -hmm. So what do you use that money for? We'll primarily use it for the treatment of Eurasian water milfoil. Um, We budget about $50,000 per year um, just just to treat these nuisance species and invasive species. Not only do we have the displacement of the local native species, but there's huge recreational impacts that we have too from blocking off waterways, clogging drains, um, actually getting taken into boat propellers and impellers. Mm-hmm. I owe an apology first to uh, Kathy Meyer. So it was the Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department, right. as, not, your, not your department. As far as I know, the county has not received any grants for removing invasive plants, mm-hmm. but we do dedicate resources to that because it is a, is a problem in our parklands too. Mm-hmm. The city of Bloomington's uh, grant is going toward Griffey, Griffey right. Lake, right? Mm-hmm. They have the same problem out there, don't they? They do, and uh, they've historically tried to use just um, kind of natural methods, mechanical, hand-selecting, raking, um, and it's a, quite a large problem. So I think they're kind of being pushed to uh, move into the more of the uh, chemical realm of treatment, and, and a lot of people don't necessarily like the term chemicals when they're introducing them to the water, but they're pretty selective agents that we use. And when you come into this type of abundance, it's really almost necessary to have any major impact. Okay. So you said just on the one thing, there's you're spending $50,000 a year. So are, are you making any progress, or is this just going to continue indefinitely in terms of $50,000 a year? It's, it'll probably continue um, indefinitely. We budget fifty On a good year, we'll generally spend $30,000. There are some other actions that we take. Um, we do a, we kind of draw down the water during the wintertime, actually hope for good freezes so we can freeze off some of the roots vegetation and try to use some natural methods. Um, we're a very shallow lake out there. Average depth is only 10 foot, so with that light penetration, we're kind of, we're really always going to have plants. <laughs> so those, I'm sorry, what did you call it again? The milfoil? Yeah, yeah. Eurasian water milfoil yeah. is our primary. So does that come in on boats, or how is that how is that getting there and continuing to thrive there? Yeah. It, once it becomes established, it's very hard to get rid of, okay. but initially it is through boats. Um, different boats will travel through waterways around the state we get a lot of uh, fishermen and uh, recreational teams that come out so there will be maybe in you know three to four different lakes around the state in a period of two weeks so they'll, they'll kind of get stuck on the propellers on um, the water that comes in if they're using water from the different lakes uh, to keep their bait fish alive it's uh, primarily from boats traveling from one to the other and vehicles also even on the terrestrial side, and only get vehicles in these muddy kind of back areas out in the woods, and uh, they just kind of really latch on and drop off mm-hmm. in other areas. Now, I know, um, Ellen, you mentioned uh, already garlic mustard today, and I know that that's a, 
that's one of the one of the invasive plants and i i hadn't really heard of that that much until this year and i've gotten a couple of calls at the newspaper about garlic mustard starting to grow over roads and or like all over the place absolutely uh-huh. garlic mustard continues to make inroads in the county through in our forests this, this is a a little biennial plant so it grows for 2 years and then the second year of its life it puts up about three to four foot tall flowering stalks, and then it produces pods that have seeds. And one plant can have thousands of seeds, and they put those down, and the population grows and grows. And it has really negative impacts on tree growth, on the wildflowers that are in the understory. Um, And what we try to do is really talk with landowners in Monroe County so that they learn to identify species like garlic mustard and learn how to control it. We have an event coming up on June 11th, our Sustaining Nature and Your Land Day at City Hall, um, where we're going to be doing just that. And everyone is welcome to come from 9 to 3.30 and learn about invasive species, how to identify, how to control, and make your land healthier, more diverse, better habitat for wildlife, for pollinators, and everything else. Mm-hmm. So garlic mustard, is, is that the one they're encouraging people to, to eat, too? Is that right? They are, and as a special bonus... If you come to Snail Day on June 11th, we are cooperating with um, food studies at IU, and I have cleaned and packaged up and frozen five pounds of garlic mustard leaves that they are going to turn into delicious cuisine. So you can come and actually try garlic mustard as part of the events of the day. That's how garlic mustard originally got here, is people brought it because they ate it, and it... um, Stayed contained pretty well for a long time, maybe 100 years, Mm -hmm. and didn't really spread. And then something changed. We don't know quite what, but all of a sudden it it took off and just started spreading itself all over the place. Mm. uh, There are various kinds of invasive plants. What are some of the other um, that people will recognize that they'll see out there anywhere? Kathy? My, my, my least favorite is probably the purple winter creeper that is planted all over yeah. campus and all over town. It's a ground cover that uh, people have loved because it will grow in the shade under the trees where the roots dry everything up and nothing else survives. But once it starts climbing those trees, it sets fruit and those, those berries open up kind of like bittersweet. They have a, a yellow shell on the outside and they open up and the birds eat those berries and fly all over the place, and when the seeds come out the other end of the bird, they're planted everywhere. Oh my! And it is really hard to get rid of that stuff once it's once it's there. My yard was covered with it, and it took uh, intensive pulling. And I, I still have to patrol the boundaries and pick out every little sprig because every little bit of root will re-sprout. Mm-hmm. And it's all over town. And it's this is one of the things you can still buy in nurseries. It's legal to sell. There's a demand for it. People want these plants, so the nurseries keep supplying them. Mm-hmm. Is that the story with Bradford pears, too? It Definitely. is. Let's if you came Bradford. to me next, I was going to say, and my least favorite, we have a new brochure, Invasive Plants in Indiana, that we created statewide, and it features on the front a beautiful picture of Bradford pear. And Bradford pear is kind of, it's a cultivar of calorie pear. Calorie pear is the parent species, and there are over 100 cultivars now that have different characteristics. Bradford is one. But they've all become invasive and are uh, invading forest lands around the state. The worst infestation of this species of calorie pear in the entire country is in southern Indiana, uh, in Martin County. 
And we actually did a video on it to show the thousands of acres that are now dominated by cow repair in the understory because, as Kathy was saying, the birds move the fruits, deposit them, and then it just goes wild. And so we are really concerned that there are still people selling this species and still planting this species, not realizing the damage that they're causing. So we are working with the Department of Natural Resources to try and ban the sale of invasive species in Indiana. Ellen had mentioned how noticeable the, the bright green bush honeysuckle is early in the spring. And this is the white stuff you see everywhere right. early in the spring. You're driving around, you see all those pretty white little trees out there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. That's, that's the Bradford or calorie pears. Don't, we don't see the, yeah. the dark side of what's happening. So yeah. when, did, when did Bradford pear sort of, I guess, jump the shark and turn into this, <laughs> turn into this bad thing? I mean, well, no, that's a really good question, Sarah, because it started out so innocently because horticulturists found the perfect calorie pear and they said, this is so beautiful. We shall call it the Bradford pear. And they genetically clone it. And when you do that, it's all the same genetic individual. And they can't produce fruits because they don't, they're not self-compatible. And so it was a perfect tree. It didn't produce any fruits. But then those Bradford pears, if you've ever had one and gone through a windstorm, they split. And it's because the branch architecture is weak. So the horticulturist said, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's come up with a different genetic individual that doesn't do that. And they came up with aristocrat. And then they came up with Chanticleer, Cleveland Select, and a hundred other cultivars, everyone genetically different. And then one neighbor planted Bradford, the other planted Chanticleer, and you had two genetically different individuals. They crossed, bam, thousands of little fruits started (laughs) being produced. And at that point, that was probably 10 or 15 years ago, we started seeing it move because those fruits were now being produced. Oh, okay. I have one more question about Bradford okay. pears. Just right. because in the neighborhood I live in, you build your house and you get a Bradford pear <laughs> in the front yard. So what are you supposed to do? Should I know. Get rid Cut of it down. Know. Well, you can't. It's just, it's just there. It, it causes, I mean, the reality is that you may not see the damage in your yard, but the birds are taking those fruits and they are taking them over to the nearest natural area and depositing them there. So we encourage people to get rid of them. And there are great, um, we have on, at Snail Day on June 11th, we'll have plenty of, here are the alternatives you can use. We even have Natalie um, Marinova from Ecologic. They have the new uh, native plant sales here in the county. She's going to be speaking on native landscaping, what you should plant instead of a Bradford pear and these other things like purple winter creeper. There are great native alternatives instead. All right. Our phone numbers are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington and 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. You can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And we're talking about invasive species, but I can see that we're going to get into uh, some alternatives for invasives. So if you have questions out there about what would be better to plant, just please give us a call. Kathy? Just to be clear on, on the fruit, you might think a pear of fruit would not be a bad thing, but these are not the kind of pears you can eat. Oh. They're little, hard, round, brown things. And after a frost, they get mushy, and they fall all over the sidewalks and make messes on people's cars. And you'll see flocks of starlings, another invasive species, devouring these things and splattering them all over the place. They make an awful mess, too, on your, on your sidewalks and cars. Mm-hmm. Good point. So to get back to the, the what should you plant instead of a Bradford pear, so if, 
if Sarah wants to get rid of that Bradford pear and, and find something else, what, what are one or two things you would suggest? Depends what you're looking for. But if you want those beautiful white flowers early spring, I would suggest um, Juneberry or Shadbush. Um, the service berry is another name. It's Amelanchier. Comes in a lot of different cultivars um, and has early big white flowers that can kind of replace that look. Um, and they have fruit you can eat. <laughs> Bingo. There you go. <laughs> or if there's some great hawthorns, crab apples, those things. So if early flowers is your desire, you can get them in a variety of colors that have edible fruits. Way better. All right. We have our first phone call of the day. So we're going to go to uh, Susan, who's in Unionville. Susan? Good morning. I'm so, I guess it's afternoon. I'm so glad that everyone is there today. Thanks. I wanted to ask you, I'm a landowner out on the north side of Lake Lemon, and I'm wondering, as an individual, where do I get started? What what kind of help could I get? Adam? Well, if we're looking for the terrestrial or the aquatics, you can always start with calling the Conservancy District office. Um, and also, what we have here, there are quite a few volunteer days. Um, we have a lot of information online. So give us a call. And I, I think I actually recognize this voice. <laughs> is this uh, Susie Salmon? Yes, it is. How are you doing? I couldn't be with you today. <laughs> Susie actually helped set up one of our uh, invasive volunteer days. We're trying to remove some uh, invasives around the park, such as stiltgrass and autumn olive. And I believe, were you out there also? I, I, I was out there at one of the early days yeah. as they were assessing the problem and helping to sort of see what all the problems were um, on the land. Yeah, and really we just need to, we're starting to work on trying to get a few more um, educational documents available to the public, resources available online. Um, and out there we really are just trying to get some of the manpower in. It's kind of, gets expensive if you're hiring a lot of companies to come out and the invasives take up a lot of land. So hosting volunteer days um, really helps us kind of cut back on the budget and make a huge impact. So what are you actually doing? Just pulling these? Yeah, um, essentially we'll pull them and then we uh, go through and we'll, what they call paint them. We'll use some type of chemical to kill the roots down um, after the plants are removed. But initially we're going through and removing the, the physical plants themselves. Okay. And as an answer for, for where can landowners start, a good place in Monroe County is um, many of the land managers here are part of the Monroe County Identify and Reduce Invasive Species Group. And we have mc-iris.org as our website. We have a whole section on landowner resources. Do you want a free survey of your land and we'll identify the invasives for you and tell you how you can control them? We'll do that. You just go to this website and you can online register for a survey. Do you want information on alternatives? That's on the uh, website as well. And there's lots more information about the June 11th event and the uh, speakers that'll be there, the exhibits that'll be there. Um, we're inviting anybody to come and challenge us. Bring a weed, and we will identify it. We'll have the best <laughs> weed identifiers in the county there that day to help you understand better what's in your yard and what to do with it. The free invasive plant surveys are a really nice service. I've done several of those and recommended it to a lot of people. And we have several people who volunteer to do that. We'll come out and walk around your property, find out what your goals are, help you identify things that are good or bad and uh, come up with a plan along with you to help address the invasive plant issues that you have, recommend control methods. And we even have some tools to loan out. We have the uh, big weed wrenches, which are uh, a, a big lever that you can yank shrubs out of the ground with, and it's very satisfying to use them. <laughs> um, Monroe County Parks and Recreation has those to loan out. Bloomington Parks and Recreation has some. The Extension Office has some. Yep. And uh, soil and water. 
Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Yeah, and out at the lake, we have um, some also that are kind of scythe uh, dual blades that you can throw out into the water and actually pull back on the cords, and they'll help help cut them down too for for species that are in the water. Mm-hmm. All right, Susan. Anything else? I appreciate everybody and all of your answers. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Uh, 855-0811, that's an 812 area code, 1-877-285-9348. And you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I want to ask for just a basic definition. It, what, I mean, what is an invasive species? I mean, are they, can they be, you know, locally grown and still become invasive, local to the state and still become invasive? That's a good question. Most of us go right to the federal definition that an invasive species is one that's not native to your area and it causes harm, either harm to the economy, the environment, or human health. So by definition, we say that native plants can be aggressive, but they're not really invasive. Um, And so it's really the non-native plants that did not evolve here that come in and displace others that we consider invasive. Okay. And that confuses people because a lot of people say, oh, I have black-eyed Susans in my yard, and they're so invasive, they spread everywhere. But by the technical definition, that's not an invasive plant. Okay. All right. We actually have another phone call. So uh, Valerie's on the line from Owen County. Valerie? Yeah. Hi. I've got uh, 20 acres in Owen County that I purchased in um, 1977, and shortly after that, you all may know the DNR was selling these wildlife packets, which included the Otomales. This is before, I assume, they realized how invasive it was going to become. So I've got certain areas. Fortunately, I didn't plant it in too many areas, but it's completely devoured several acres and spreading into the woods. And I've uh, gotten a lot of technical assistance from the state forester and other sources in terms of how to address this. However, the cost of some of these herbicides to, uh, designed for use on shrubby plants is, for me, cost prohibitive. Is there, are there any sources of financial assistance for individual landowners that want to try to control these uh, autumn Well, one source that you might consider is is connecting with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, if you haven't yet. They have a program called EQIP, and landowners can apply for uh, funding for some invasive control. Yeah, hold on a minute. I'd like to, what's it called again, the Natural Resource? Conservation Service. And they'll have a local office where you can connect with them. And, and if, you're, if you're friends with your district forest, uh, forester, he can put you in touch with them as well. They work as partners. So okay, yeah. um, that's one source of information. But I'll say that, you know, we are so jealous of the lake folks because of the LAIR program. <laughs> and I wish we had a program like that for the land. And we really don't. And we Well, I've got a purple loose drive problem as well. So what's the, what's the source of uh, help for that? <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not positive. The lair um, will. They'll give money out, but the purple loose strife. I mean, it's a very. It's right on the edge of the water. It's a, it's a, an, a, not necessarily an aquatic plant, but kind of in. Um, right, it's a wetland. In the right. wetland plants. Um, so when they give out their funding, it's primarily for lake well, and for river, actual, just uh, yeah, actual like aquatic that. species. Um, we have actually had some of that planted around the lake, and I know you can still buy the purple loose strife, and they not claim legally. not legally. <laughs> I've seen that, and I the, the, they claim they're illegal now in Indiana yeah. to. to 
sell it or buy it or have it, you know, available. Well, one of the fun things we're doing, I just sent out an email this morning to our MC Iris members that we started releasing the Purple Loosestrife Biocontrol Beetles a couple of years ago. Yeah, I tried those. <laughs> well, you might. We're having a, a field day next week to collect some more, and people can release them places where you've yeah. got Purple Loosestrife. But okay, it may be so that the site I, you've got, it's not appropriate. When's the field day? How do I get some? You can contact us through our mc-iris.org. There's an email thing. Email me through there, and I can give you the details on the workday. Okay. Well, uh, I don't have a computer, but oh. I guess I'll uh, figure it out. All right, mc-iris.org. Yep. Yep. Thank you. All right, Valerie, we're going to have to let you go. we got to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about invasive plants. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And today we're talking about invasive plants in Indiana and why they're a problem and what you can do about them. We have uh, three guests with us in the studio, Kathy Meyer from Monroe County Parks and Recreation, Ellen Jacart from the, uh, she's the director of Northern Indiana Stewardship for the Nature Conservancy and a resident of Monroe County and Adam Casey, District Manager for the Lake Lemon Conservancy. If you have a question or a comment, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So I had a question earlier as so we were talking about boats bringing these into different lakes. So do we have any rules in place that say you need to clean your boat or do it's, something? Um, there's n nothing that's really mandated. It's highly suggested. It's really dependent upon the lake or the reservoir that you go to. We're really adamant about getting information and literature out and uh, checking the boats as they come in. During the heat of the season, we'll actually go out there and make sure people are wiping off their boats, um, draining bilge pumps before they leave the lake, um, emptying out live boxes. Um, and that's so it's really dependent on the lake more some lakes you go to will actually make you do a um, Actually scrub down the boat and they have bay areas for that and that's something we may look into in the future Currently, we do not have the resources right there to have a dedicated area um, So it's really dependent on where you go one of the things that we do get is the uh, fishermen that come they're pretty um, they, they love their boats. They take very good care of them So on that aspect, it's really nice because almost every time they're done they'll wipe them off clean out the water and they want to keep them in top shape. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention we've been uh, we've talked about um, LAIR a few times today. That's the Division of 
Fish and Wildlife's Lake and River Enhancement Program. So uh, we talked about how Lake uh, Lake Lemon is going to be a part of that program. So if if you didn't have Lair and you really weren't being aggressive and trying to combat this, I mean, what's what's the end game? Um, the end game is really a zero recreation potential. Um, Lake Lemon was formed in the mid '50s. And uh, for the first few decades, it really was just taken over with Eurasian water milfoil to the point where there's hardly any swimming, hardly any boating. Um, you just really couldn't use the water at all because it's such a nuisance and there's such a densely populated vegetation. Mm-hmm. Um, people that have been there for multiple decades or were there in the 70s and 80s and come back to visit, they're just amazed at uh, how much it's changed and how much we've opened up the water. And being a shallow lake in such high sunlight, um, if we didn't do anything, it's really, it'll take over. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, Lake Lemon and Griffey, their problems are similar. Now, um, Kathy, with uh, Monroe County and, you know, the parks and uh, the areas that you deal with, I mean, what are the biggest problems that you have? Well, we don't have as much water. We have some small yeah. ponds and, uh, and neighboring creeks, but uh, the woodland species are, are our biggest problem. And uh, as, as the caller had mentioned, uh, years ago there were programs that gave away plants like autumn olive and multiflora rose and promoted those as conservation plantings because they offered shelter and food for wildlife. And uh, they succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And now those, those plants are everywhere in our woodlands and, uh, and they're a big problem to try to remove. Mm-hmm. They, they clog up the trails. They, they, uh, they keep all of the understory vegetation from growing. All the spring wildflowers that we enjoy are, are choked out and shaded out. And some of these plants even have chemical effects on the soil that prevent other plants from growing, like the bush honeysuckles do that. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about things like bush honeysuckle, are there, are, there, are there different varieties of it that are okay, or is it just blanket honeysuckle? There are several species plants, yeah. and hybrids of Asian bush honeysuckle. There is a native one. We don't really have it in this area. So it's not one people are going to find in their woods or buy at their nursery. Uh, the ones the ones that we find growing are all the invasive Asian ones. Really? It seems like that would be a really hard thing. Like how do you identify when something is a good honeysuckle or a bad honeysuckle? Or Bring it to snail day. <laughs> <laughs> when we were young, Grandma would always bring us to the honeysuckle bushes to suck on the syrup. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a question that's really sort of similar to that. It seems like a lot of – I don't know. I think about ground cover as – being some ground covers as being invasive species, is that correct? So, you know, every a lot of people want to have ground cover if they can't grow. You know, if there's not in in the city, if there's no grass or uh, areas that they just think need to be uh, planted with something. What are good ground covers, and what are the ones that we should all be avoiding? Well, my favorite is, and that I use in all my landscaping, is uh, wild ginger. It forms an almost complete <laughs> carpet and, and does incredibly well in the clay soils that we have that can be so challenging to grow plants in. But wild ginger is a great native that um, makes a beautiful carpet um, across the ground, but mm-hmm. also allows other species to interact. So you can include in all the other um, native spring plants, uh, jack in the pulpits and wood poppies and blue flocks and spring beauties and everything like that. But it'll form sort of a carpet that everything else grows in. Mm-hmm. So or even what? things like daffodils. They don't have to be just natives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we, we all tend to favor natives, but, but there are non-native plants that are not invasive, like your daffodils and things are not going to go marching off into the woods. <laughs> <Okay>. Right. 
And what about what about some that you see, you know, some ground cover that's planted by people that you think, oh, no, I wish they hadn't done that? <laughs> There's several of them. Okay. Kathy already mentioned the purple winter creeper. That's the uh-huh. number one bad one. Mm. Periwinkle or vinca is yeah. another one. Oh, yeah. And gosh, if you go to Spring Mill State Park, if you go to Morgan Monroe State Forest, you'll Yellowwood. see. Yeah, oh, Yellowwood. You'll see hundreds of acres of that green vinca covering the hills because it was planted in cemeteries in the 1800s or at home sites and has now just spread for miles. Um, so vinca is a bad one. Um, it's nearly gone at Spring Mill. It, I think it had spread hard. out from the inn, and they've been working on that for the last few years, and there's hardly any there now. But you can still that's buy that. Yeah, story. you can still get that. And you can, you can well, buy that anywhere, right? You absolutely can. Yeah. I mean, and that's why we've been working with um, the state for the last really – 15 years to convince them that it was time to stop the sale of these because Mm -hmm. we even did we did a survey in in 2013 and we asked people land managers of of public places land owners across the state and we said how much did you spend on controlling invasive plants last year and we came up with 5.7 million dollars and so what we're trying to to suggest to the state is that this is a real economic cost to us and Yes, we need to stop selling these things so that we don't increase these costs. But the DNR is also dealing with the folks that sell these species who are saying, well, but if we can't sell Bradford pear, we're going to lose money. And, of course, our answer is, no, just sell the service berry. (laughs) People will buy what you sell. We just need to stop selling things that cause damage and economic harm to our communities. Mm -hmm. Burning bush is the other big one that the Mm -hmm. nurseries insist that they need to sell because people want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and a lot of people have those in their yard. They turn brilliant red in the fall, beautiful shrub that have those little berries that the birds eat. And people say, well, mine is not spreading. It's not invasive. But as Ellen mentioned, the birds eat these berries and they go all over the place. Mm-hmm. And if you drive around the roads in the fall, the ones growing in the woods don't get so bright red. They look kind of pink. And you'll see little pink shrubs all through the bush, all, all through the woods. And that's the, the burning bush. All right, we have a phone call, so uh, let's go to Chuck. Chuck is from Bloomington. Go ahead. Um, Hi there. Thanks for doing this. Y'all are covering a lot of ground today, and I really appreciate it. I want to know what to do with all this honeysuckle after I cut it out next week. If I'm going to get rid of chainsaw and just cut the whole mess out, it's a mess. Good for you, Chuck. (laughs) What what should I do with it, he says. (laughs) Well, once you – are you in the city or are you out in the country? In the city. Okay. There your your options are are fewer. Um, You know, I'm in the country, and so I just pile it up and let turn it into like a wildlife area. Um, Or you can, um, you know, pile and burn if you have permission to do that. In the city, I think you have fewer options – Kathy? Uh, you can get a mulcher and, and chip it all up, or uh, if you can cut it up in small enough pieces, you can bag it and put it out with your yard waste stickers. Which one of those so sounds sound- like I should rent a chainsaw and a mulcher? <laughs> yeah, I think so, Chuck. I think that's your best bet. And do remember, Chuck, that if uh, once you've cut it, you need to paint that stump with some kind of herbicide or it will simply resprout back. So, so keep that in mind. Boy. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of stumps out here. Have. Better get a lot of paint. <laughs> no, it doesn't take much. I mean, you're just dabbing a little bit on there, and so it's a very targeted way to kill that plant without harming other things in your yard. 
Well, that's good. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's all, it, it surrounds me here in the house. It's just, you know, it's less than a quarter inch, quarter uh, acre lot, but boy, it's just all the way around the house now. It, it was a shrub, I mean, it was a shrubbery before, but now honeysuckle just taking it over. If you didn't want to use the herbicide, if you get uh, the brushy, brushy stuff at the top cut off and leave a, a pretty good sized stump, you could grab it with the weed wrenches and yank that whole root system out of the ground. And uh, I understood that you had those for uh, uh, use. We have some does. to borrow at Monroe County Parks and Recreation. Bloomington Parks and Recreation also has some, and the Extension Office, which is in the same building as the Recycling Center on South Walnut. Cool. Thanks for your help. All right. Good luck. Thanks, Chuck. Okay, Chuck. Thanks a lot for the call. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the local area, you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can get a lot of help today about what to do about your invasive species and lots of suggestions for what to do to replace them. Can we talk about just some other ones that you all would recommend that people can still buy, but they should recognize the name and think, no, I should get something else? <laughs> oh, let's see. Um, the brochure that we put out last fall, the Invasive Plants in Indiana, we listed a lot of those because we want people to realize they shouldn't be buying these things. Um, Oriental bittersweet is a terrible one uh, that's invasive. Norway maple, which is the most popular maple out there. Crimson King is the most popular cultivar. A lot of people have planted it invasive. There are plenty of other maples that are not invasive, but Norway maple in particular is one to avoid. Um, Japanese barberry, really a commonly planted thing. Um, we're seeing it, if you go to Brown County State Park and a lot of our other woodlands, just look in the understory and you'll see these tangled messes of Japanese barberry growing. So that's another one to avoid. Some of the grasses are a problem too. The, um, the Chinese maiden grass starts spreading by seeds. The seeds blow in the wind. And when they come up in your lawn and you mow them, they, they are really tough leaves, and they'll look really frayed and stringy when you mow over those. So, th so that's a way of knowing if you have that grass, if it's spreading in your yard and you mow it. It's really mm -hmm. characteristic look. Yeah. And, and along water's edges, too, we have the stilt grass, which is kind of nice looking. It has a little, sh little uh, silver line right down the middle of it, which is one of the ways to uh, identify it. That kind of grows right on the water's edge, but kind of bridges that little terrestrial And all of the trails. Stilt grass is on a lot of the pathways and trails through the woods. <laughs> all right. We have a phone call we want to go to. And uh, we have Dawn on the line. Dawn? Yeah, I'm here. Go ahead. Um, I I have a question about um, a vine. I have a very invasive vine in my perennial garden that it just wraps itself tightly, winds and winds and winds around um, everything. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It does, um, at times, produce a small yellow flower. Um, does it, and it looks like some kind of an ivy. Hmm. Well, Kathy and I are both looking at each other and saying bindweed. That's probably our best guess because it's the most common vine in a garden setting. So you might uh, Google and just take a look at bindweed as, um, and, and if that has the right leaf shape. Um, okay. 
and and that is a difficult one because it has this underground rhizome that's kind of deep and it just pops up shoots everywhere and you pull the shoot and you're not actually getting rid of the roots so you kind of right. have to dig it out um, going down to the depth of the rhizome and pulling the whole thing out it takes persistence I've got it too yeah. in my garden and so I tend to just walk along and as soon as I see it coming up I just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and dig down yeah. to get some of the root the way I have been getting rid of it, and it's been pretty successful, is to allow it to get long, unwind it from things, and stop it from strangling my plants, but unwind it, and then put a little poison on just the leaves mm-hmm. so that it'll absorb them, and then it seems to kill it and stop it, and it seems to kill the root. That's, um, a, that's a great way. Some people will use a paper or a plastic bag, take that, everything that you unwound, you put it in the plastic bag, put the herbicide in that and just close it up. Plant takes oh, it in, it's idea. dead. I hadn't thought of sealing it because, yes, I have to be really careful not to get my my um, my other plants, my perennials, uh, get any poison near them. Right. Um, I hadn't considered wrapping it in a bag. That's a great idea. If you're still not sure what it is, you could bring it to Snail Day, June 11th at City Hall from 9 to 3.30, and, and we can take a good look at it and be sure of the identification for you. And, and okay. one, one thing I hadn't mentioned about Snail Day, you should know if you're a gardener, is that on the day of Snail Day, we are going to have free $5 coupons that you get $5 off any native plant for sale at the farmer's market, at the participating vendors. So come to Snail Day and you can go out to farmer's market and get $5 worth of native plants free. Oh, terrific. All right, Dawn. Thanks very much for the call. We Thank appreciate you. it. Why do you call it Snail Day? Oh, sorry. I was wondering it's, that, too. <laughs> we're, we're MCIRS, and we are terrible with acronyms. Uh-huh. It stands for Sustaining Nature and Your Land, and so Snail Day. Okay. Uh, we gotcha. all have acronyms. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, we have another phone call. Uh, this time it's Beth from yeah. Monroe County. Go ahead, Beth. Hi. Uh, right now I'm thinking of um, poison ivy as invasive. Um, it's it's around anyway, but right now there are certain areas that uh, seem to be very invasive, and I want to um, pull it out or dig it up, but it it's it seems to uh, grow off of runners, and I'm wondering what's the best way to eradicate it. I, I've been working on this for a couple of years, um, but this spring has. I think because of the wet weather, it's really uh, taken off. First of all, not all native plants are good and not all non-native plants are bad. And poison ivy is one of the native plants that is not really nice to have in your yard. Mm-hmm. So we can't technically call it an invasive plant, but it might be an unwanted plant. And uh, a lot of the um, the herbicides sold as brush killer, like Roundup and things like that, are, are pretty effective on poison ivy. And there are some that you can just dab on the leaves so it doesn't spread onto anything else that might be growing around it that you want to keep. And it'll be absorbed into the root system and kill the whole plant. Um, one area that I'm thinking of particularly is on the um, low part of um, uh, right near a pond. And I'm wondering if, if I used Roundup, and I've not ever used that um, so far, what effect? might it have on the pond? 
If you're using, so Roundup, the active ingredient is glyphosate. And if you're using glyphosate on or near water, you have to use um, a product that is labeled to use near water. Um, it's not the glyphosate itself that is the problem. It's the surfactant or the soap that they put oh. in it. Mm -hmm. And so you just look for the version that's labeled for using on or near water, and it will not have the dangerous surfactant that would harm aquatic life. Okay. Um, so you can do that. I'll tell you, maybe I'm crazy, but in my yard, um, in the springtime, I rip it out. I cover myself completely head to toe so no skin is exposed. <laughs> because it does have those rhizomes, but after a, after a rain like we've been having, this ground is soft, mm -hmm. you can pretty much just pull it out, wrap it up, get rid of it, um, and then take a good shower with Technu. Technu is a scrub that takes off the poison ivy oil. A miracle oh. worker. <laughs> Isn't Technu wonderful? It is, it really Technu? Is. Yes. Yeah. T-E-C-H-N-U. Wonderful okay. stuff. And when you are applying near the water, you just want to kind to make sure there's not uh, any rain scheduled or planning that day or right the day after. Um, that way it doesn't wash off the chemical into the water. You want to try to pick some dry days so the chemical gets absorbed without any of the runoff effects. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, where, where do you get the technique? Um, I think that's now for sale at most places. I usually like, just go to CVS. Yeah, CVS, uh, Walmart. Oh. Um, it used to be you'd get it through forestry suppliers, but now it's pretty regularly mm -hmm. available at any pharmacy. And it's okay. great for tools, too. Um, you can put it in baths, put your tools in there, and soak it in there. It's great on your skin. Um, it's really the only thing that I've ever found that actually works with the poison wow. idea. That's great. Thank you. I'm getting a lot of good information here. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. That's Bye. our goal. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> we appreciate it. 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 from outside the Bloomington area or join the live chat at WFIU.org slash noon edition. So I wanted to ask about the Nature Conservancy just in general. So what are all the things that you guys get involved with? Wow. Not all of them, but a okay. few of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I work for the Indiana chapter here in Indiana, but we have chapters in every state, and we work in uh, many countries at this point, um, and uh, just added Africa, working in, in uh, Africa as well. Um, we work to really protect plants and animals by protecting the waters and the lands that they need to survive. And we do that with direct action by simply buying land and managing it. So statewide, we have about 30,000 acres. The nearest nature preserve is Cedar Bluffs on the south side of town, beautiful place. And um, we also work with farmers to uh, change their farming practices to decrease sediment into creeks and in order to help the aquatic animals that are in the creeks. And I work with uh, invasive species policy and legislation to try and decrease that threat to um, the places that we protect. So we work in a lot of different ways. Okay. So w our caller earlier was talking about removing honeysuckle, but... I'm wondering if you're removing all of these plants, what do you do then to help prevent erosion of your soil so you don't just have bare dirt? You really have to think about that in advance, absolutely. So if you're on a slope, if you're someplace where the, the soil could move, um, one way to do it, like we'll use, um, say, herbicide to kill out if there's an invasive on a, on a slope. It keeps the plant there, it keeps the roots there, but immediately you then plug in something else that will start growing uh, and, and stabilize that slope. Um, you don't want to disturb the soil, and that's when 
using a chemical can be a better option than if you were to, say, use the weed wrench and rip out something on the slope. You've now bared the soil and disturbed it. You're going to get more erosion. So it really you have to think about what method will cause the least soil disturbance and then think about what you're going to have to plant afterwards to keep the soil from moving. All right. We have a couple more people that want to get their phone calls in. So let's go to Michael from Bloomington. Michael? I was wondering if you have opinions as to whether or not you are you know, doing damage that's resulting in the spread of things like garlic mustard. I've seen the city's woods on the south side near the Y and the community garden. It used to be just lush with things like Solomon seal and trilliums in the spring. And I've seen garlic mustard spreading there as well. And in some years, it seems like the deer have eaten back almost everything native that's edible to them. And I was just wondering if you have an opinion as to whether or not controlling deer populations might be important to this, too. I'll wait for your answer. Thank you. I, I have a very strong opinion. The answer is yes. <laughs> There's been some great work done by Dr. Susan Calise, um in Pennsylvania where she showed definitively that if you fence an area and keep the deer out in 10 years, the garlic mustard will be gone. The only reason we have a garlic mustard problem is the deer overbrowse situation. They are eating every native plant that's out there bearing areas, and in behind, simply the garlic mustard is taking advantage of that disturbance. So yes, if we could bring down the overabundance of deer in the Bloomington area, it would have a really beneficial effect on our native plants and do a much better job at keeping things like garlic mustard and stilt grass from invading. So is that a bigger problem here in Monroe County than in other parts of St. Derek? Do you know? It is in the city limits because there's no limit on the population of the deer. Yeah. Which has been, of course, a big issue for the last two or three years and will continue to be. Okay, we have another phone call. It's Lucy from Bloomington this time. Lucy? Yes. Uh, isn't Roundup one of those herbicides that kills honeybees? No. No, it is not. Uh, so Roundup is an herbicide, active ingredient glyphosate. Um, there is a class of insecticide known as the neonicotinoids, and they do have a direct impact on bees. So herbicides can only impact plants. They are designed to only impact plants and rarely have any impact on any class of animal. So um, that's... Yes, but you don't know what's in the can. That's what a, you can buy Roundup and it can be, uh, have other things in it. That's true. So it's not the glyphosate. Like we were talking about with the water situation, there is a soap in there as well to make it adhere to leaves. And that soap can have negative impacts on aquatic animals. But there really aren't direct impacts to bees or other flying insects that we're aware of with any herbicide that's sold. All right. Thanks, Lucy. And uh, we had a f another question come in about kudzu. Could it spread to Indiana? Is it not here now? It is in Indiana. Okay. Southern Indiana. The question was, could it spread? But yeah. yeah. There are okay. several sites in the state, and they're being monitored. Uh, Ken Cody is um, our state, what's his title, entomologist and nursery inspector and mm -hmm. everything. Uh, they are monitoring sites where it is known to occur. There are some in Monroe County. And uh, the McIris Group has adopted some of these sites and works diligently to kill the plant and monitor them to make sure it's not coming back. So there are sites. The biggest the biggest one is in Evansville. They have the biggest area that's covered by kudzu. Okay. But with climate changing, it might be 
encouraging kudzu to, to uh, live through the winter farther north. I don't think I'd heard your group called Machiris before, but could, <laughs> Ellen, what, so what's, what's the uh, website again? It's Last thing. mc-iris.org. All right. I want to thank our guests today, Kathy Meyer, Ellen Jacart, and Adam Casey, along with our producer, J.D. Gray. It was back today producing. Thanks, J.D., engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.